People like us that believe that every word of Scripture is God-breathed are more and more dismissed as fundamentalists and uh, bi- even bibliolaters, people that worship the Bible. And um, that is a horrible misunderstanding. Every time you open your Bible, I want you to have it as a discipline of mind. Every time we come together, it's our discipline that you are seeking not just to understand what these words mean as the authors in the, in the Spirit intended them to mean, but that we would know God through that meaning, that we would come to Him. And this is not God, but this is a faithful translation of the Word of God. And that's the reason that we pay attention to the Word so closely. We want to know God. We want to do that on His terms. And that is described, that lifelong process of coming more and more to know Him, to enjoy Him, to serve Him, is described as having fellowship with Him. We break fellowship with a perfect, righteous, and holy God through personal sin. And God cleans us up from our sins and restores us to fellowship when we confess our sins. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer to re-engage that which has been lost. If we've been defiled, let's pray. Father, we have read in Your Word that what You do with Your Word in us by Your Spirit's power is to mature us and furnish us as mature ones capable of Your service. We want to be about Your business tonight, but not merely academic, not merely thinking, yet certainly thinking Your thoughts, Father as we love you, as we worship you. Father, what we do is, in worship to you, help us do it well. Help us learn and grow as we seek to lay hold of you, of understanding what you would have us know of yourself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are winding down our study of Christian spirituality. And in these last few discussions, last few meditations on what it is to be filled by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit, I want to, uh, to discuss the concept of the defeaters. And this is not up there on the screen. There we go. Tonight our topic is somewhat described by the action that the person is taking there with that European-style plug. Now, I'll just take it on faith that I'm telling you that's an electrical outlet. Uh, and um, for my purposes, this person, it's, I'm going to be uh, pessimistic with you a little bit. This person is pulling the plug out. She's not putting it in. It's a girl because I say. Uh, could be a boy. I don't, it doesn't matter. But the point is that this is someone unplugging uh, an electrical device that won't work if you pull the plug on it. And so our topic tonight is defeaters of Christian spirituality, the things that shut us down, the, the reason why 
we might find ourselves walking in darkness and how that, how that comes about and how to think about it. I'm going to ask you to do some hard things tonight. One hard thing is to come here um, with the lights on still outside. On a pretty day like today, it's just now tolerable outside, and here you came inside. That's just not right. So you've already done a hard thing. Let's do something even harder. I'm going to ask you tonight to think about thinking. If I were to give you a discussion on consciousness, I think I would succeed in removing your consciousness from you. You would then be unconscious. And that is no way to, to, to make it through the next few minutes. In fact, it's, I think it's frankly, it's very dangerous because those, those pews in front of you, that, that wood, that is not any place to rest your head slow or fast, you know, if you pass out. As I discuss in monotone, the concept of consciousness, I won't do that. But I would like you to think tonight about the hard business, the, the adult business of thinking. Because I, I, I believe this is where the battle is won or lost. And for most Christians, I think we don't do much winning. We are in a war. I've called it defeaters because the war is an invisible, ongoing conflict God has permitted the angels to revolt against him, the fallen angels, Satan, the chief of them. And we read plenty in Scripture. It's not everywhere in Scripture, but there's enough of it. It tells us we are in a war. Peter tells us to prepare our, ourselves for action, gird up the loins of our minds for action. He also says that the devil is like a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour. And the way he eats, the way he eats is he gets you to agree with him. So when we're talking about defeaters of Christian spirituality, we're talking about Satan's plan for your life, the enemy's agenda for your choices. When you put it in those terms, well, pastor, this is about sin. And of course, how do you find yourself forsaking your birthright, that you have the Holy Spirit living in you, empowering you to serve God. How do you find yourself from that position of light walking in darkness in this tragic, fallen, and dying world? How does that happen for Christians? Personal sin. Very quickly, if you turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. There are a couple of key passages that make us really pause when we think about that act of personal sin, which is a, usually an unconscious choice to forsake the filling of the Spirit, to say no to God's work in us. We've read it recently, but in, in Ephesians 4, we're talking about the way we walk in verse 17. You, that I say, no, walk, no longer walk just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Now that description would be the walk in darkness. This is the death of Romans 8, first five verses. This is possible, and it's awful, but it's possible for you. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, who are called saints in chapter 1, 
So were some of you in chapter 6, but now you've been washed. He's talking to Christians when he says, what you're doing is acting like mere men, functionally acting like unbelievers. Listen to what it's described as. Darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Having become callous, they've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've heard of him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. See, this is talking to Christians who are believers positionally in Christ, who are yet still and constantly responsible, come on in, responsible to put on Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, he's going to describe personal sin. He's going to describe personal sin. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. In, in verse 25, lay aside falsehood. In verse 26, be angry yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Then I give the devil an opportunity. The devil's opportunity is in your anger that goes to bitterness. Here's how I think this works on the sun going down on anger. I'm angry and I feel it. And all the physiological effects of anger are in me. I've got the adrenal response. You know, my blood pressure is elevated. Heart rate is up. We're in fight or flight. Baby, it's fight. We're angry and we're having that physiological response. You know, in the moment that that, that happens, you can see, look at yourself and say, oh, wait, I, I don't want to do that. You come to yourself and say, I'm making a wrong choice. And you repent, you change your thinking. You say to God, Heavenly Father, I have chosen to give in to anger and forfeit your work in me. And that moment of confession, that's cleansing. God is faithful and righteous to forgive you and cleanse you. But you know, you have all that junk in your system still. Adrenaline, heart rate. You're still physically responding, but you've chosen morally, you see, to say no to your sin. Well, guess what happens? Well, now I've got to come down off of that. Go for a walk. Drink some water. You know, and, and, and we have to deal with the material and the immaterial. The whole self. And so, what I'm saying is, when you get angry and you don't repent, change your thinking about that and confess that sin and, re- and reject that and leave that, and you just let it go, the heart rate comes down, blood pressure comes down, adrenaline gets processed out. Now what? I'm still sinful. I still have the remnants of that sin, but I'm not angry in the moment because I'm, I'm over it. For, you know, I'm done thinking about that. But what has happened is that husk of anger pellet that I took has now become a seed that becomes bitterness in my soul. And now I am not necessarily angry, but I'm resentful. Now I'm harboring, now I'm holding, and now I'm going to sleep. Oh, let's wake up with that flourishing. Let's, let's grow that pea vine up over ourselves, right? That, that's not how we want to live, so we confess it and reject it. But he says, don't let this anger go to bitterness because in verse 27, you give the devil an opportunity. He who steals, steal no longer. See, these are personal sins. Anger is a personal sin. Stealing is a personal sin that you, a person, commit. You are doing it. And, and, and instead, labor, perform what's good with your, hand, with your hand so that you'll be able to share. Verse 29, no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Okay? Verse 30, 
I think is a summary statement. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Personal sin, rejecting fellowship with God, saying no to enjoying God's righteousness in common with God is to grieve the Spirit of God. I don't know what it's like to be God, and I never will, but I know that I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, but that's what it says. That's what you do, what I do when I commit personal sin. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Look at verse 30, Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in a list of don'ts. Don't do these things. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I'm calling it a summary command of the effect of our sinfulness on our relationship with God. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. It's personal. It's an undesirable thing that you're doing that is having an effect of some sort on God described here as grief. That's the language that the Apostle Paul uses. Sovereign, omnipotent God doesn't need me. He's not heartbroken and off blubbering in the corner that I have sinned. Oh, David failed. You haven't given God a bad day. He's not weakened or lessened by your failure, but it's described here as grieving. So here, here's what I want you to understand. He then says, by the way, the Holy Spirit is the one by whom you've been sealed. That's set apart to God and marked as His unto the day of redemption. So understand again, we're talking about Christians who are sealed, set apart to God and marked as God's forever to the day of redemption, to your resurrection. That's settled if you're a believer in Christ. But Paul, in talking to you, says, don't do this. Don't commit these sins. Don't grieve the Spirit. I have an inevitable conclusion. You with me? Personal sin is possible for even a believer. In fact, if it wasn't possible, there would be no Ephesians chapter 4 or much of the rest of the New Testament. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The mental attitude sin of hatred that produces these wicked sins of the tongue and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and things that we do to stir up trouble with others. And here's the alternative in verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So you adopt the attitude of God in grace. You extend that grace you've received. And as they used to say, pay it forward. You take it from God and you give it to someone else because you've received it. You know, the grace you receive from God, you can't outgive it. You can't say, well, I need to hold some more of this grace for me and not give it to someone else because I don't want to lose my, my stores of grace. It's not how it works. God gives you grace and then you give that grace and you still have it. I just gave it and I still, I still have it. And I'm just giving that grace. And I can't get rid of the grace that God gives me because he wants me to proliferate that grace to others. And that's the attitude that we're going to have if we're walking by the Spirit toward one another. We're not going to be sinful toward one another. This is to grieve the Spirit, to commit personal sin. If you hold, well, you don't need to hold the place. Flip over in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we're talking again about defeaters of Christian spirituality. Again, in a summary passage with bullet commands, like, like, like machine gun commands, do this, do this, do this, do this, or do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. When Paul is issuing summary instructions, it's almost like you have a teenager that you're going to do a test run, and you're going to let the teenager stay at home by himself, by herself, while you go out to dinner with your, with your spouse. What do you do in such a case? 
Well, you have some summary instructions. We just need to charge up and recognize that these are the expectations. These are the consequences for success. These are the consequences for failure. Let's charge all that up and, hey, I'm going to see you in low about two hours. And we won't, go, we won't get back in the fire trucks be lined up down the street. Right? And so, so the, the, Paul is telling them in this, as he rolls up this summary letter to these young Christians, this summary expectation, what it looks like to walk as Christians. Verse 12 of chapter 5. We request you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Next topic. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. Listen to this beautiful summary. Admonish, nutheteo, correct those who are out of line, literally, the unruly, those who won't walk the line that God has set forth. There in Scripture is the command for Christians to correct Christians. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See, this is what you do in love. You meet the person's need. The unruly needs to get back in line. The, the, dan- the, the faint-hearted needs to be encouraged and lifted up. You meet the person where they are, and that's Christian love. In summary, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That's Christian love. See, I got my definitions from reading Paul and John, New Testament. The words of Jesus, as John records them and reflects on them, and then what Paul does is he elaborates. What he says in verse 15 He says, seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. I'm saying that is what it is to love someone, to look for their best. 1 Thessalonians 5.15. So you're not taking revenge, you're not repaying evil. Well, they did it to me, so I'm going to do it to them. No. You do what they need. You don't do what you got from them. You do what God wants for them. Well, God wants me to get them back. No, you want you to get them back. And if you are your own God, then go ahead, take your revenge. But if God is God and you are not, then you have to think about it. What should I do in this case? And we've read in Romans, you you can actually do some uh, heaping of coal as you bless the person and do not curse. So now verse 16, I love this command. My feelings are commanded in verse 16. I am supposed to have so much self-control because of the Holy Spirit's power in me and the Word of God that has begun to grow and flourish so that I become more and more like Christ. I am commanded to rejoice always. The only way you can rejoice always is if you have a good enough, good enough information that you've become aware of that is a cause that, for constant joy. There has to be a reason for you to have joy in that response. And what is the thought? What is the truth that is a constant, no matter what my circumstances are, that I can rejoice about? It's my Savior. It's His work on my behalf. It's His love for me. He loved me and gave Himself for me. It's His intercession on my behalf. It's my position in Him. It's my so great salvation. My relationship with God the Father that cannot be broken. The love that God has shed abroad in my heart so that I'm able to love him as I should and love you as I should, as he wants me to. The wonders of our so great salvation. This is the reason for us to rejoice always. And when you say it like that, yeah. I mean, yes, I've got a constant reason to rejoice. What do I have to do to rejoice always? It's Thursday. I've got to think. I got to think. 
because my salvation can all be true. It's all back there. I believe all of it. But if I'm not thinking about it, if I'm not remembering it, if I'm not calling it to mind, thanking God for it, if I'm not taking the treasure chest out from under the bunk, flipping it over, get all the dust off that treasure chest of God's salvation for me, and I open it up and I look at what God has done and He's told me all through the Scriptures. If I, if I don't let the Gospel continue to have its manifold effect on me as we read throughout all of Paul's epistles, all the wonders of our so great salvation, if I don't keep bringing it back to mind then it just becomes something that, yeah, I believe that. But it's not filling me. I'm not filled by the Spirit. So I'm not walking in fellowship and enjoying God's things in that treasure chest in common with Him. And so what I'm saying is I'm asking you to think about thinking. Rejoice always calls me to think. Pray without ceasing. My life becomes a prayer. It does not mean... Pray five times a day. You should. You should pray 50 times a day. It doesn't mean that you're a weirdo who's always walking around talking and everyone thinks you're talking to yourself. It means that you are in a constant attitude of contact with God where you're thanking Him, where you're talking to Him, where there are moments of intensive, focused prayer, but... I'm not done with you, Father, just because it's 9 o'clock and work starts now. I've spent, get to, get to work at 8.45. Boss doesn't want you to start till 9. That's a beautiful little time to set God, set your, your day apart to God and pray for those that you need to pray for. But at 9 o'clock, well, clocked in. See you, Lord. No, you're, you keep talking to him. It's still, you're still mindful, conscious. I shouldn't say mindful. That's modern mysticism pagan mysticism but i mean you're you're thinking of him and you're talking to him and it, his presence is real to you because you're saturated with his word because the spirit is working that in you and everything give thanks for this is god's will for you in christ jesus all the universals universal constant gratitude universal constant joy universal constant prayer all the time I'm doing these things. That they're, for, they're all the time things. And then he throws a very interesting command. Do not quench the Spirit. Spinumi, do not stop the ongoing process that the Spirit is doing in you. Do not quench the Spirit. I believe this is a reference to what the Spirit does with what follows. Do not despise prophetic utterances. It's a different command I have a friend that says verse 20 is actually the same command as verse 19. To quench the Spirit is to despise prophesying in the early church when the prophet would get to the pulpit and speak or get in front of the, the, wherever the people are gathered and, and speak. That that would be to quench the Spirit, to deny, despise prophesying. I think it's a little bit more focused on what the Spirit is doing in you. And that stops His work. And certainly it involves the prophetic Word of God. Because what God wants to do with you, what the Spirit of God wants to do in you and me, is transform our character by the saturating effect of God's Word. He wants to fill us with the Word. And when, he, when we say no to this, when we despise the prophetic Word of God, in the early church, that would have been a prophet coming to the assembly and saying, this is what God says. And then we wrote some of those prophesyings down, and that's the New Testament. And it's, that's what the prophet would do, is he would speak the Word of God. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form. Doesn't mean appearance, it means everything that is actually evil. Morphe, everything that, I think it's morphe there. 
Nevertheless, what I wanted to focus on in verse, uh, verse 19 is the command not to quench the Spirit. Do not grieve the Spirit in Ephesians 4.30. Do not quench the Spirit. I think these, I, I have a controversial view about these. Big surprise, everything in the Bible is controversial. Any verse, there are 15 views on how any verse of Scripture works. Here's my controversial view. I think that what the Spirit wants to do in me, on the one hand, is quenched. On the other, on the other side of the coin is the personal relationship is described as he's grieved. One is personal, one is the description of the personal relationship. The other is the description of his mechanical work in me. But both are the description of, I believe, the compromising of the filling ministry of the Spirit. The choice for carnality, the choice to walk according to the flesh in First Thessalonians, or sorry, Galatians chapter 5. All right. Hold those verses in your heart. You don't want to stop what the Spirit is doing in First Thessalonians 5, and you don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 4. One of those, I think, is the rejection of the Word of God, and the other is the embracing of personal sin. So let's talk about defeaters of Christian spirituality. I think there I can describe three key defeaters, three things to look out for that we all struggle with and deal with all the time. Three key defeaters of Christian spirituality. The first is distraction. The first is distraction. How in the world am I going to pray without ceasing unless I have some measure of attention on my Savior, on my Creator? How can I rejoice always? How can I give thanks for everything? Unless somehow I've got a focus. I have some measure of attention on who I am and who God is, who I am in Christ. Distraction. The second, personal sin. This is explicit. Explicit from grieving and quenching the Spirit, I think, from the grieving of the Spirit, I think the problem there is personal sin, and that seems to be the problem in Corinth. They're carnal, they're fleshly, they're sinful, they're described by their sinful nature rather than walking by the Spirit. Personal sin. And then, this is not your fault, but you will sin because of it if you're not careful. The sins of others, the sins that other people commit. And I mean, the reactions you and I will have in our sinfulness because of things that we have been attacked with. And we just heard from Paul, don't repay evil for evil. But I think these are three defeaters that the Holy Spirit is infinitely powerful to to overwhelm these things. But we have to be filled by the Spirit. We have to be embracing that uh, that walk in the light, that walk of fellowship with God. And it is, as we've said, radical. Let's talk about distraction. Please turn to Colossians chapter 3. Just a little bit back from 1 Thess. If I say position in Christ, do you know what I mean? Every time Paul talks about the believer in Jesus, he says those who are in Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? Baptism of the Spirit, union, identification with Jesus. 
Now, do you know what I mean by position in Christ? It means that my new identity, because of God's work of salvation, is that I am crucified with Christ, and I am buried with Christ, and I've been raised with Christ, and I've been ascended to the right hand of God with Christ, so now that I'm glorified in Christ, my position is seated at the right hand of God. Paul is going to make an argument in Colossians 3, the first few verses, that really sets up our need to avoid distraction. Listen to the description of the radical Christian life that we're talking about when we talk about spirituality. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Now, have you been raised with Christ? That's your position in Christ. You have been positionally. If Christ has been and you're united to him through the baptism of the Spirit, identification with Christ, then you're raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So this means that there is an intention, there is an attention, there is a concentration, there is an orientation of life. If I'm seeking something over here, then I'm not walking over here. I'm seeking this. And this is the same thing Jesus says when he says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and these other things of logistical need will be added to you. This is the attitude, the focus, the attention issue. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. This is the problem of distraction. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's a, it's a position sandwich. If you've been raised with Christ in verse 1, and you're, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God in verse 3, that's all about your position in Christ. And what's in the middle? What's the meat in the sandwich? Position is on the outside, my, my, my new identity in Christ. So what's on the inside? What I do with my attention. How I live my life in terms of the orientation. This is why on mission is so important. Well, what do we do with our lives? The mission that Jesus gave us helps us organize our resources, our priorities, our time. And so we decide what to do with our lives in the sense of on mission to serve God, to worship Him. And now it's easy much easier to keep looking at the things above because we're wasting our lives after the flesh, according to the flesh. We're just doing spiritual stuff. We're just concerning ourselves ultimately for spiritual ends and eternity, that stuff you can't see or touch. And the world says you've lost your mind. But we haven't. We have had our minds renovated. We've been renewed in Romans chapter 12. But see, the, 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 the command is that you keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on the things above. See, the opposite of that would be to be distracted. And it's so easy to be distracted because you've got eyes and you can't use them to see the things above. You can't see God. You can't see the things we want to see. That's why there's this whole mystical book-selling thing of, oh, I saw it. Oh, let's read about that. He saw it. Wow, lucky him. You know, way better to just read what the Bible writers said. They saw it better than these new false prophets that claim to have seen. Let's just read what the, what the apostle said. I don't know about you, the, your new thing. I'll just go with what Matthew tells me. Peter did see the transfigured Christ and Moses and Elijah. We don't know how he knew it was Moses and Elijah, but he did see them in Matthew 17. He saw the glorified Jesus Christ before he was glorified. It's an, an amazing thing that happened in that 
portion of Scripture. See, the problem is we can see, but we can't see God. We have to walk by faith, not by sight. But I don't want to do that. I want to walk. Me and Francis Bacon and David Hume want to walk by sight. We want to be empiricists. We want to see it, and then we know it. And if I don't see it, I don't know it. Don't you call that knowledge, Christians. It's not real knowledge if you just got it through faith. But no, we're going to have to go with Brother Augustine. We believe in order to understand. We trust in God, even though we don't fully grasp how and what and why. But he tells us what, so we trust him. And understanding comes. So Colossians 3 sets up your problem of distraction by telling you don't be distracted. It's a responsibility that we have to take seriously. I think distraction takes our attention from the things of God. And now let's talk about the kinds of distraction that will become defeaters of Christian spirituality. What's the most powerful thing in your life besides God? The most powerful force in your life. I'm going to go out on a huge limb and say the most powerful force in your life besides God. No, it is not your air conditioning, Connecticut, when it gets up to 78 degrees outside. We can't take it. It's got to be 77 degrees outside. I know it got higher, hotter than that. It's really nice here right now. It's really awesome. What's the most powerful force in your life, the most powerful attraction, force of attraction that you will experience in this life? You know what it is. It's why Anthony said, forget y'all, I'm going to the caves. We introduced monasticism, and they said we're going to get away from the world. The most powerful thing on earth It's not a lion, it's not a bear, it's not an elephant, it's not a blue whale. It's another human being. The most powerful force in this world that isn't God is his highest creation. And his highest creation on earth, the human being, is what? Sinful, flawed, and broken. Hopelessly selfish and self-centered. And looking for an opportunity to build his own self-image on you. We call it friendship. It's the most awesome thing ever. Were you that little kid? Were you like me? I was the little kid that would walk around in the neighborhood. If I saw, I've probably told you this before. If I was driving with my parents home and, and, and I knew it was in bicycle range, you could, you know, you could drop a pin and there was bicycle range from my house because it was a good bicycle town. We don't have that here. But if I was on the way home and I knew it was in bicycle range and I saw kids pulling into someone's house in their car or coming out of their house and I saw children, I took note. And I would get on my bicycle at the next possible opportunity and go to that house and knock on that door and say, are there children here? I would like to play if there are children for me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine doing something like that today? Oh, yes, come in. We'll introduce you to our basement, little child. <laughs> you know, I mean, but that, that, it was a really interesting world not too long ago. I wanted to play with the other kids. I was exposed by that to all kinds of different opinions, concepts, worldviews, priorities. I got interested in things that I would never have considered because I was playing with so-and-so. Little girl up the street had a trampoline, little Amy. 
couple years younger, I'm, let's say I'm nine or ten, and she's eight. So that's fun. So we're going to go jump on the trampoline. Now her name wasn't Amy. It was something else. Let's say her name was Patricia. I'd never heard of domestic violence before, but I saw it because I wanted to go play over at Amy's house, Patricia's house, whatever the kid's name was. Thankfully, I really don't remember the kid's name. I'd never seen Scrabble till playing with Trent, and that's what they did. I'd never really gotten into golf, but there was a kid down the street that had the kid toy golf because his dad was one of these golf guys, like the kid's mom was a golf widow. So the kid was this big, like, golf kid as a little kid, and we were all interested in golf. I'd not something we did. My dad was fishing and hunting, so didn't do golf. But I mean, you get all these interests and things going on, and it's, and, and you know what? It's fun. That was really fun, finding out all these new interesting things. And we didn't barely scratch the surface. There were gazillions of things, and that's when we were outside doing a thing we used to call ride our bike and go over to your friend's house and play. Now let's talk about the distractions that the new children are facing. The entire realm of ones and zeros, all the visual stimulation, all that goes on to distract us in pursuit of that one greatest goal, the goddess, F-U-N. That is the ultimate determinant of whether we have a good day or a bad day, whether it's a worthwhile pursuit or not, whether we should enjoy it or not, is the word fun. If it's fun, it's good. And if it's good, we should do it. That's the morality of fun. And that's about the depth of our civilization today. It's epicurean, it's hedonistic. But see, fun can't be joy. And in a civilization, please don't do that. In a civilization, in a civilization where joy is irrelevant and fun is the only moral aim, the only real goal, we're very impoverished. And so the children, they're not even going to have the beginnings of an appetite for the things of God. Unless we're very careful to help them learn young, this is called distraction. Fun has its place. It's like dessert. You don't live on it. And it isn't life, and it really isn't joy. Distraction takes our attention from the things of God. I do not believe that distraction is sin, but it is an outside pressure that tempts us to commit sin. For sure, if I'm not thinking the things of God, if I'm not, if I'm not walking in dependence on the Spirit, I'm not walking... In a, a, a abiding in Christ sort of saturation with the word, if that's not um, what I'm doing and I'm, I'm being distracted by some lesser pursuit, then the sin nature has free reign. It really does. I'm going to be free to uh, disregard the responsibility to love self-sacrificially. Oh, that's still going on. And there's great joy when we do it, but it's not always fun. I think this outside concern of distraction and uh, every one of you is different in how you respond to distractions. You know, the old look, a squirrel kind of thing. 
It's so easy to get off track. And we, one, of our, one of our morning prayers, I think, as you get started with your day, Father, help me stay focused. Help me do what Colossians 3, 2 says to do. Help me seek you and seek the things above where Christ is and really enjoy my so great salvation. What are the effects, if you think about it, of distraction? Think about when you've been distracted. You know what I'm talking about. Like your attention isn't where it needs to be. What are the effects? What are the effects in your life? Has it really gone well for you? Is it desirable? Does, do things kind of go out of, out of sync in your life when you're chasing fun or some lesser pursuit and you're not dialed in? Now, I'm not saying you can't have fun. I, I wouldn't take away your toys. But, you know, what's interesting is what's fun changes as you grow up. What's fun for a little kid isn't so fun for a grown-up. What's fun spiritually for a spiritual baby isn't so much fun for a spiritually more mature person. Paul says, I put away child, the things of a child when I was a child. And when I grew up, I, I used to play like a child. Now I'm a, I'm a, I'm a mature person is the idea. And so um, when you're distracted, I think you're stunting your growth. You're not careful to be about your father's business. You forget what you're supposed to be doing. You lose track of the one you serve because your eyes are so dazzled that your heart is distracted from the one that you're living for. And who knows where you leave the path into personal sin. I struggle with this. I'll just share with you my struggle on sin. If he tells me to pray without ceasing and it's a command... Um, and I don't, then I'm basically disobeying a command. Uh-oh. See what I mean? So I'm not saying you're perpetually sinning. I'm saying it's possible for you to do what he's describing there, and you need to do it. And when you're not, you need to say, Lord, help me get back. When I tell you Christian spirituality is radical and not really practiced, I, that's what I mean. It's so, it would be so easy for this to be about charismatic uh, mysticism and emotionalism. You know, oh, I had a thought, it has to be God's or something. And just the osmosis method of Christianity. This is way harder. But it's much, but it's real and it's rich. And so, um, let me ask you if you could tell me how to defeat distraction. Out of sight, out of mind? That's really good. That's what I'm going to be as I'm gone next week. Uh, down, to, down to Tennessee, out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah, so, so if you avoid the thing that distracts you, then you, you've left it because you're not looking at that. You're looking at things above. You're seeking uh, first the kingdom and his righteousness. That's a good negative way to avoid distraction is you put it away. Somebody give me a positive. How can I inject something into the system that will really be spiritual energy that helps me maintain my attention i could i could spend time in prayer as the word says in a personal relationship i have to always have communication or the relationship fizzles communication so where so i'm talking to him at what point is he going to talk to me oh i'm just gonna feel it 
I'm going to K-love it, baby, and just wait till I just can't stand these three-chord songs, these torch songs to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not totally critical of the pop culture. I'm just not part of it. But how am I going to get some energy into this system where my relationship is being fed by his communication? I'm going to talk to him. That's me talking and communicating to him, but how's he going to talk to me? Yeah, I'm going to have to crack the book. I'm going to have to be in the Word. And this is why I think it's a daily thing. I can't find in the Bible the command to read this and meditate on this in an intensive way every day. I can't find the command. I can find the encouragement to do so, Psalm chapter 1, meditating on it day and night. I can see encouragement in Proverbs chapter 8 from Lady Wisdom. But this is common sense. If I'm going to have to have something that drags my attention out of the distraction, back into the things of God, something more powerful than the dazzling enticements of popular idolatry, it's going to have to be something high voltage like the Word of God. And that's why we have a date every single day. I'm going to be with God and His Word every day as we started tonight to open it to know Him. Because it's a relationship, so I'm feeding this relationship, and therefore my attention is where it belongs. Second second, uh, defeater was personal sin, as we said. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. Everybody sins differently. You are your own worst enemy in the sense that you at times say no to God and yes to your flesh. The metaphysical sense of flesh as used throughout the scriptures to refer to that in me which is corrupted and desires to disobey my creator, to disregard him, to seek itself. That one theologian called the incurvature of the soul, that self-focused tendency I have to say it's about me, it's not about God. We all have different trends, different patterns. Some of you are very comfortable with rules. And you're sinfully comfortable with rules to the point that you build yourself up by comparing yourself to how closely you follow the rules in comparison to other people. That is so disgusting. It's really nasty. The legalist is, oh, you know... If, if God didn't set up the local church as the way for us to grow and, and to serve as an institution, the legalism that tends to swarm around local church would make it not, make it unworth, un, not worthwhile to someone like me. Because, see, my arrogance and self-righteousness tends in the opposite direction from saying I'm right because it's me and I follow the rules better than you. My arrogance and self-righteousness is, and my tendency is to say, you're a disgusting person in your self-righteousness about your rule following, and at least I'm not that. So now I'm self-righteous about how unself-righteous I, I, I am in comparison to you. And so now I'm a different kind of legalist. It's really crazy, but I'm self-righteous about my wanton libertinism. That's really nasty. And we're just, we're, pick which toilet you choose to enter the sewer system through. 
That's what we're talking about. This is just, it's awful. Sin is disgusting. And until I can say that and say, maybe I don't always feel that way, but I believe that, I think that I'm convicted of that, we really haven't understood the cross as much as we need to. Jesus paid for every sin of self-righteousness of the legalist and every sin of self-righteous arrogance of the, the libertine, the antinomian, the, the lawless person. And we all have our tendencies, and some of your tendencies tend towards certain types of personal sin, sins of the tongue, verbal sins, uh, sins of thought. You could just sit there and look all churchy all the time, be just as sinful as, as the person over there running their mouth. And, and, and wow, that person really looks sinful. They don't belong in church. And there you're sitting there with your church mouse face on, and you look, wow, look at that holy, holy grin that that person has. And inside, it's just garbage. Because it's not about uh, the way you look, and it isn't just sinful if you see someone doing it. Sin is, it's, it begins in our thinking. And so personal sin is something we really have to be aware of and, and warned about. It creeps in, and we don't see it coming, and all of a sudden we're guilty especially mental attitude sins, like bitterness. Sometimes, and it's true for all of us to some degree, I'm sure, we get into a habit of something that God has said no about, or we disregard something God said to do, and it becomes a habitual way of life for us. And, and training, letting God train you through his word, and, and sometimes God's people coming alongside you and saying, you can't live like this and serve God. It's impossible. And I, it's not about me, it's about him, but just look what he says. We get into these sinful habits, and these are, that's, that's a huge defeater. You can never walk in the light if you're constantly choking on darkness. And so you have to b- break the pattern. And, uh, you know, maybe you need help doing that. Maybe you're in a sinful pattern, sinful habit that you, I, I just can't help it. And I, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about I can't stop talking back to my parents. You know, sinful pattern. What did you think I was talking about? I can't stop thinking I'm better than the other people around me. I've got this habit of mind that I constantly go to that. And it destroys my walk with God because of my pattern of arrogance. I just can't stop talking about people and trying to find out juicy information. I'm old school. I'm typing up my Facebook, baby. Look at that stuff. Can you believe that? Let me forward that. Or you know what? I'm not going to share that. I'm going to PM three of my best friends. Did you see what? And it becomes a pattern. And that's just a hobby. I just gossip as a hobby. Now, your Facebook is not necessarily gossip. I'm not saying you, that, that being on it means that. I'm saying that gossips need to probably avoid it if it's your weakness, if you have a tendency toward that problem. Sinful habits. And uh, the question is not, well, do I have any? It's what do I entertain and say this is okay and it's a habit for me. And this is the worst of all, I think, when we start being our own defense attorney for our sin nature. We start trying to cover over and say it's not sin. We don't tell the truth. That's John, that's first John one. Don't do this. Don't say that sin is not sin, but we do. We tell ourselves these lies and say, well, you know, eh." our culture, the new popular morality is to say sin is not sin. Sin is good. We're proud of it. 
sexual sin, sexual perversion. I consider perverted sex, any sexual contact, it is not between a husband and wife. That's the perversion of God's design. I don't mean somebody has a weakness toward one type of perversion. I think this is a big problem for the human race. But we lie to ourselves about it. We say it's not sin. It's okay. I can't, I can't help it. That's my favorite. My favorite thing is to encounter Christians that you want to help them out. They come ask you for help. And then you, you get into, you kind of know them a little bit. And then, they, you know, I believe in Jesus. Oh, absolutely. But the devil, he's strong. What that means is I don't want to stop smoking pot. That's what it means. I don't want to stop fornicating. It means I don't, I, I don't, can't imagine my life without this sinful thing that it just technically God said it's not, I'm not supposed to do it. But, you know, you can say, well, God didn't say don't smoke pot. That's right. He said, don't be drunk with wine. And so let's apply the substance problem and the being filled by substances uh, to, across the board. What about this? This is really tough in our passage in Ephesians 4 when we don't repay evil with evil to anyone. What about the sins of others? This is a huge defeater to your spiritual life if you let it be. And see, the devil is strong, but he's nothing compared to the Holy Spirit. You are more than conquerors if you have Christ. And we've talked about your position. You're exalted in position at the right hand of the Father. So, Let's figure out who you are before we start talking about how the devil is more powerful. Or this person's sin keeps me from having a spiritual life. That's, that's Fort Snowflake. Captain victim of Fort Snowflake. You don't need to live there. If I was going to do a comic strip for the, uh, for the newsletter, I think it would have to be Captain victim of Fort Snowflake. You, know? you can't claim victimhood if you're a victor. But people do sin against you. When someone sins against you, we call that abuse. There are habits or patterns of abuse, and that's what psychologists call abuse. But um, what, what's missing in secular psychology, secular theory about human behavior and brain patterns and so forth, is that they've completely missed God. The sin of, against someone else, the hurting of another person, is, is actually first a sin against God because you've messed with his image bearer that he cares about and sent his son to die for. And so it's, it's daddy is saying, you're messing with my people. Take care of people. I, I made them. I want them. I want them so much I sent my son for them, you see. And so, so abuse is a sin against God by sinning against some other person. And you've been the receiving end of abuse. You, somebody has sinned against you. You know how I know? You're here. You're alive. You've made it this far. And you've also dealt plenty of abuse. You have sinned against other people. Plenty. Now look at all you patterned abusers. Hurting other people. Saying things you should never say. Thinking things that... You shouldn't think and then saying them in your anger. I almost want to say shame on you, but I'm not going to go that far. Because it's shame on us. But, but this is abuse. It sins against uh, another person. 
if, if someone wrongs you, it's not right to say they didn't. Oh, I didn't, Kenny, it's okay. They didn't really hurt me. No, they, they did something bad to you. They, they gossiped about you. They made a public lie about you. They assumed all kinds of false things and then zophared you. You know, Job's friends don't want to steal your thunder. Threw a zophar at you and, and uh, accused you of things that weren't true. Some friend, right? It's abuse. It's sin. It's arrogance. Guess what? Everyone you know is an abuser. They aren't necessarily a pattern abuser. Oh yeah, great. All of us, right? You know what's beautiful about sticking your finger out and pointing it at, at someone, right? Is um, three fingers are pointing back at you. What this does in me, if I'm not careful, if I don't think, is I react. I commit sins of reaction like anger immediately, right? My, self, my sense of self has been somewhat, somehow damaged. You touched my idol and it's me. I'm angry at you for that, right? And anger goes to bitterness, hatred, and we're off to the races because we're reacting to the sins of others. It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem, especially for children whose parents abuse them in a pattern, in a, in a, in a, a patterned way. This is why in Ephesians chapter 6, do not provoke your children to anger. It's part of your spiritual life, spiritual parenting. Another problem with the sins of other people that you're not guilty of, but it touches you and it hurts you, is that you want to join them in their sin. This is not an abuser. This is somebody that's going to go do something they shouldn't, and you get tempted to go along with them. It explains several industries. We call it peer pressure. Again, what's the most powerful thing in the world besides God? As far as what we can see, other people. And they are easily um, attractive uh, to us. And I think often minions of our enemy, the devil, without knowing it. When someone leads you to follow their sin. Indulge me just a few more moments to give you a model that I'm working on of um, taking the complexity of how I come from my convictions to my choices, combining with my feelings, my conscience, my, uh, and how that all comes down to choices that I make and actions that I take. I'm going to take that very convoluted, interrelated thing that's just an impossible thing to, to draw and I'm going to spread it out like taking a globe and making a two-dimensional map out of it. There are distortions when you do that, but you can see the whole thing. I want to unravel some of this and make it a linear picture, a linear picture of, come on, title, who we are. You ever hear someone say, you are what you do? I'm a pastor. I passed. Teachers teach. Firefighters firefight. Pastors, I guess they passed. That's funny. You are what you do, right? You do a good job, you're a good person. You do a bad job, you're a bad person. That kind of idea. What about you are what you think? Right? We misapply the proverb, as a man thinketh in his soul, so he is. 
Well, look that one up. It's talking about not, not going in to, to, to benefit from the, from the hospitality of someone that doesn't really love you. So if he doesn't really love you, don't, don't, take, don't eat his food. He doesn't mean it. That's, what the, that's the proverb, it's the wisdom thing. It's not an existential statement about human condition. As a person thinks in his heart, so he, there's, yeah, but what, what's that talking about is what I'm trying to get at. That would not be, in other words, that's not your first verse on, on, on anthropology in the, in the Bible. But, but of course, I believe it's true. So who are we? Well, inside you, there is what you know. There's what you believe. There are your convictions, your principles, your beliefs, your understanding. You have something in you. I think we're born with predispositions to uh, intuit certain things that you could never prove. I can't prove causation. I can't prove other people have minds. You know, borrow a little bit from my Scottish forebears, but there are things that we're just born primed to conclude. But as you grow, you come to know a language and use it. You come to know things that you can say in the language and you use those. You see what I'm saying? And so there are these things in you that we'll just basically call knowledge. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The more you come to know the word of God, the more that characterizes what I'm talking about here as sort of your set of your principles, your convictions. You haven't done really anything yet. We're just describing what's in there. See what I mean? It's in there. How do I use it? It's the hardest question in the world. How do I apply the word of God? You've got the word of God on grieving and quenching the spirit. How do you use it? So I want to go from that body of what's in there to what I do with it. And there's something that happens in you every decision you ever make that involves this awful fight between what you think and how you feel. It's, it's a mis- mysterious thing. How many times will I ask, why did you do that? I don't know. I don't know. I believe you, you don't know. But if I say this, you felt like it, didn't you? Yeah. In such a case, the sin nature is serving up a temptation. The temptation is a feeling. I'll feel like doing something I shouldn't do. I really am not going to think about what God said. I'm not going to conclude anything from what I know, but I really feel like doing that. I don't know why. And so, bing, I'm going to do it. So thinking lost, feeling one, mark one for feeling. Right? And how, much, how many bad decisions in life, sinful choices have you made where you acted contrary to God's will for you and it was because you felt like it? And I'm just saying that's a real thing. It's, we call it emotion because it motivates, because it, it gets you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. Why did you do that? I felt like it. Why did you feel like it? Really? I don't know. Better get out in front of this thing. It's powerful. But if I take that thing that is there, the knowledge, understanding, beliefs, convictions, I think that is going to influence, I mean, it better influence my thinking. That's what I do with those things. I think about them. But then the more I think about them and the more they characterize me in the moment, the more I feel along with them. For example, God is holy, perfect, and righteous, and he loves you as his beloved child. That's a, that's a truth in your, over here, that in your knowledge, understanding, beliefs, convictions. God loves you, and he wants you, and he wants better for you than you could ever imagine. It's a principle. 
Sometimes you feel like directly disobeying him as though he doesn't exist. But if you think about the things that you believe, that you know about him, that he's told you, you start to feel a different direction, right? That thinking about who he is and his love for you starts to help you feel toward loyalty, Lord, toward wanting to please him, toward a desire, a feeling, even a feeling of joy in your salvation that is a different kind of feeling than I feel like disobeying. I'm just saying it's a complicated thing. The Bible directs, directs and addresses our emotions constantly. There's a battle going on in here. And I think if you take what is the sin nature and what does sin do over here and what does sin do over here, we can see what's wrong with our civilization. We've, we've redefined the principles as sinful principles that are now the good thing. And then uh, we're emotionally responding to our wicked principles so that as we think and, our, and we feel along with evil, we make evil choices. But somehow in that crazy washing machine of thinking and feeling and who's going to win and we want the thinking to win and lead the feeling, we end up with our choice. And then we're at the finish line. We, make our, we do our actions. Now, the reason I told you this is, this is spreading the map out is because thinking is an action. And all these things are interrelated. So you, it, you can't over... This is a really oversimplified picture. But what I wanted to do was say these are all components that are going on. I have what I believe. I have a temptation. I have, a re, I have something in my, in my thinking that's combating something I feel like from my sin nature. It's all, it's all going on. And somewhere I make a choice, and that's where sin is actually occurs, sin or, or a righteous choice. And, um, you know, the choice is, is preemptory toward the action. I won't really do it till I choose to do it. How about this? I choose to do it, but I don't. That's weird. Choosing to do something but not doing it? I think that's not choosing to do it or choosing not to do it. I told you, I'm going to ask you to think about thinking. I know I'm going long, but I won't see you for two Sundays. So. I think this is what's already there, and it's growing every time you encounter God and His Word. Every time you spend some time thinking about Him, this gets solidified, reinforced, reignited. I think about these guys, I think about these, uh, these DM2 missionaries that go and do Romans 1 through 8 five times a year working through Romans chapters 1 through 8 for an interested audience of, of, of missionary field people five times a year. Do you think they get bored of Romans 1 through 8? No. Do you think they get to the end of Romans 1 through 8? We fully understand it? No. I mean, that's better than watching Empire Strikes Back again and again, seeing something new every time. But what I'm saying is, this is what's there. It's your conscience. It's being loaded constantly with your content doesn't mean you're going to do the right thing. We're way over here. We're what's there. We got to get over here to actions, the right kinds of thoughts we need to have, the the winning of our thinking over our feelings. This here is what we do with it. It's your experience. I think Christianity tries to live here and not do much about this. I think we have a tendency, if we're not careful, to say, oh, I just love to learn and we don't get over, over here as much as we might need to. Tonight's whole message was on just application, by the way. This is all application of don't grieve, don't quench. And just looking at how, how that could be possible. I think you are not just who you, what you think 
or what you do. I think it's both. I think who you are is the complex of your convictions and how you either do or do not carry them out. And now I want to ask you the question that really brings this idea home for me. What about your sin nature's effects on every one of these components that we sort of unraveled and put in a linear portrayal? What about how the sin nature and the lie of Satan affects your knowledge base, your understanding, your convictions? What about how the sin nature then infects your thinking so that you think contrary to God because you're loaded with concepts that are contrary to God's word? Or how your feeling is now charged to reject the things of God. And then, of course, you choose to follow sin. And then you, choose, you commit personal sin. What I'm trying to also show you here is you have to be in the Word. You have to take action here. Uh-oh, not that. Come back. I have to start over. Just kidding. You have to take action to get in the Word. That means that somewhere over here I've got to take the truth that I've got. I need the Spirit to fill me with the Word. I need that saturation. I know it's true from what He's already taught me. So then I think that thought, I don't feel like it. I feel like eating potato chips and watching TV. But that's a distraction. I need to think what I believe. I need to choose what I believe and have the joy of knowing I'm getting it right. Maybe that joy isn't very loud at first, but it'll grow on you. And then I'm going to choose to do what? To get in the Word, to just load, to load up over here. See what I'm saying? This is is what Jordan Peterson calls self-authoring, but it's not. It's Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit writing you, making you who He wants you to be. But you're making choices. You're defeating the defeaters. You're avoiding distraction. You're saying no to personal sin. But it, it's got to all be functioning together. You have to choose to be in the Word, but then the Word changes your conscience. Your conscience informs your thinking and your feelings, and, and then you're off to the races making right choices. In this is being who you're supposed to be because you're not just a hearer of the Word. That's over here. You're not just a hearer of the Word you're a doer of the word. And so that's why I said tonight, I want to ask you to do the hard thing. I want you to think about thinking. If I don't think about my so great salvation because I'm not aware from the, the word implanted, if I'm not there, then I don't really have anything to think on. I don't have any, any feeling response toward God. And that sin nature is always knocking. It's always offering. And the distractions of the world are always offering outside pressure. I don't need distraction pressure from the world to be sinful. But boy, it's hard not to be when it comes calling. So this is the answer to defeaters. We just have to be in the word. And we have to know that this is how we're made. We're made to think God's word and to feel along with our thinking, not vice versa. So that our choices bring glory to him. And how do I know that? How do I know that choices that please him bring glory to him? He told me. I've got it in his word. That's the whole thing. And what's the alternative? Basically, the whole failure of Israel, idolatry. That's the alternative. Our Father, we thank you for your word, the complexity of this life, and the simplicity. Father, the answer will always be that we pay close attention to your word so that we will know you. 
Father, help us always find our way to this answer and help us find it every day. And for our young people, God, give them an appetite for your word so that they can obey that command to long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby does his mother's milk. Father, help our children have a desire, as Mike says, an insatiable hunger for the things of God presented in your scripture so that we will know you and be empowered to please you despite the distractions of the world and the temptation of our flesh. We pray it in Jesus' name and we all said, Amen. Amen.